1: talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do
0: about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change.
1: Welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Nice to meet both of you.
1: Where are you calling from today?
0: Wellington, New Zealand.
1: Wellington, New Zealand. And is it raining in Wellington at the moment?
0: It is raining tonight. It's not raining yet, but it is windy. So. Windy, windy.
2: Windy Wellington. Yeah. Why would you want to be slumming it in, in New Zealand when you can come to the beautiful shores of Australia?
0: It's a good question sometimes, but then the <laughs> weather turns around. And <laughs>
2: hey, I'm in Wanaka,
1: New Zealand.
0: Wanaka is a place to be. <laughs> well,
1: it's actually raining for the first time, and I mean probably three months here. We get about a foot, just over a foot of rain in Wanaka. And it's been pretty city rain for the last two days, which is just unheard of. Right? All the town are just ecstatic. It's like rain. It's amazing.
2: So you're not a weather person, obviously, from Wellington, <laughs> but you are actually a microbial ecologist and oceanographer. Am I am in saying you are at the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research?
0: Yes. Got, Niwa. We, Niwa, yeah.
2: <laughs> so you are looking at the weather a little bit, I guess.
0: People here are, yeah. I I just <laughs> use my weather app on the phone to yeah. look at weather. What,
2: what, but... <laughs> what weather app do you use? This is
0: an I excellent. use Windy, actually. Windy,
1: Windy. I'm going to write that down because the one I've been using. It's the most
0: reliable in in my experience, yeah.
2: <laughs> and and look, it's apt that we're actually talking about weather because how you came across my radar was an article I saw you co-authored about climate climate. And I've actually been wanting to talk to someone about this issue around the, the role of the ocean as a climate regulator. And I'll look, it's a great article. I'll, I'll include a link to the article in the uh, show notes, along with the associated paper. So the article was called, The Ocean is Our Greatest Climate Regulator. It Must Be a Stronger Part of Climate Policy in Action. There's a paper calling a, a new way forward for ocean climate policy, et cetera. But I guess we always love to get a bit of a backstory before we dive into the science. So you don't sound like a Kiwi. Uh, I have it on good, good authority that you are from Florida.
0: Originally, so, yeah.
2: Yeah, originally. So yeah. tell, give us the backstory. Uh, what are you doing in Wellington? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in Florida, which is a good place to get involved in the ocean for sure, because mm, we're sure. surrounded by the ocean there. I grew up on the Gulf Coast and there's a lot of mining for oil that happens in the Gulf of Mexico. And so when I was in high school, so when I was like uh, 17 about the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened, which was the super big event because it was this massive explosion out in the Gulf of Mexico. All of these tar balls washed up on the ocean. We had extended dead zones, so areas of the ocean where. All the oxygen was removed and fish and other such things uh, couldn't live anymore. The beaches became really inhospitable to humans and to animals. And it really kind of got my mind thinking about everything that's happening out in the ocean. And it was right after that that I went to university. And so that kind of helped direct my studies a little bit into thinking about conservation, thinking about the marine world and kind of what I could do with my career to help that. And after Finishing university there in Florida, I went over to Oregon, which is a really great state in the U.S. of, of all the states. I think Oregon is... I hear, yeah, Constantly. Yeah, oh, we, we love
2: Oregon.
0: Yeah, it has a, definitely a spot in my heart always. And there I really expanded the studies that I was doing, looking not just at like shallow ecosystems, but really going out super deep in the ocean areas that you think would be very remote from any human interaction. But then when you go there, you see actually a lot of human impact on the environment. During my time there, I started getting involved with people over here in New Zealand, and that kind of moved to having a career here right now in Wellington.
1: Deepwater Horizon. How long ago was that?
0: That would have been 12 years ago.
1: 12 years ago. What's it like now?
0: I still wouldn't eat the seafood from the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. It's recovered in in some aspects, but honestly, the biggest impact that is seen now from that is from the dispersants that they used. So I study in my research things called methane seeps, and they're these areas of the ocean where methane comes out of the seafloor naturally, and these super cool microbes come in and they remove that methane from the environment before it can go up into the atmosphere. Methane's 25 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than CO2, so those microbes are super important and the job that they do is really relevant for us humans. In the Gulf of Mexico, there's a lot of methane seeps as well and there's a lot of these microbes that can remove that methane as well as other hydrocarbons and gases. So when the oil spill actually happened, there was this huge uptake in those microbes. They came in and they really started removing all of the hydrocarbons, all of the oil and methane and other carbon forms that were released during that explosion. But in trying to mitigate it, they were thinking really about like short-term benefits. And so they wanted to get that oil basically not washing up on the beaches anymore. They didn't want people to really see it as much, right? So they used these chemical dispersants. And those are really toxic for a lot of living things. What was it? I can't remember the exact name of the one that they used, but yeah. um it's not something you'd want in the food that you eat. Was it
1: like a PFAS type thing?
0: Something like that, right? Yeah. And it's kind of a shame in my mind it, but it's also a really good example of how, you know, if they had just left that alone, those microbes probably would have come in and like right now we would be in a lot better position, but because they used those dispersants, they took a mess and made it even messier, really.
2: I've heard this for the last 20 years around oil spills. is as tragic as oil spills are, and obviously we can do a lot to just rescue directly impacted wildlife, et cetera. I've heard time and time again but that the interventions to clean up the oil spills generally cause more damage than just leaving it alone. It's stupid, aren't we? Is that a fair call?
0: It's a really fair call, and when you think about that, I mean – it has a lot of implications for how we go forward dealing with the climate crises and things Mm. like that. Right. You know, I know on your show you talk some about blue carbon, right? And, and how we can create these blue carbon ecosystems off of the coast that can bring that can come in and like trap carbon, right? And we think a lot about like carbon negative technologies that we can use. Mm. But similarly, there's big ecosystem effect that we need to consider. And in, in everything that we do, there's a ton of feedbacks. Everything is super interconnected. And so I think we have a tendency in our society to think very short term. And so mm. we think about like the short term gains, the short term benefits, but ecosystems and the earth, they work on a really long time scale, right? Mm. And so I think it's really important that we kind of think through all the potential implications of actions that mm. we're taking and things that we're doing.
1: So, for instance, you know, Corey Hancock goes out with a seaweed farm, for instance. We, you know, all of a sudden off the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, you've got the great massive seaweed farm. You're saying that, great, that it's a short term benefit to us, but what is the long term implication of suddenly having this massive carbon? suction device placed in this ecosystem and therefore what what, i mean it's it's a really interesting thing that i'd never thought about I, i when Corey was like hey we need to suck some carbon i'm like great idea but really when now that you you say things like that you go well you know so so do you believe that like carbon or blue, blue devices like that are useful?
0: I think they can be in the right situation so something important to keep in mind is that a lot of our earth is under cumulative stress right so we have stress from climate impacts we have stress from human impacts and there's a wide range of that within human impacts in the ocean specifically you can think of you know heavy metals coming into the water you can think of microplastics you can think of nutrients from agriculture and other things and so Thank <laughs> you. If you imagine that you have a system that's already stressed by these multiple variables, and then you say, Hey, like, I know you're stressed, but you can probably handle this, right? Like, let me put this massive amount of carbon above you, and you'll just like respire that no problem and bury it and trap it away. And that doesn't always happen. So, there has been some recent work that has found that if you put a blue carbon ecosystem in an area like that, because the environment's so stressed, that carbon, when it falls down to the seafloor, it doesn't get buried and it ends up kind of getting re-released into the Mm. water column, into the atmosphere as like nitrous oxide and other really harmful gases that are really honestly worse than carbon dioxide. And so if it's done right, if it's done in an area where we know that the seafloor can handle it, then that's awesome. But if it's done in a way or in an area that isn't ready for that, that needs a little bit of time to recover, then it won't work as well.
2: But I'm keen to actually get into how we can potentially enhance the role of the ocean in climate regulation. But I guess before we do that, I guess I'm keen to get an idea of what actually is the role that the ocean already has in climate regulation?
0: So the ocean has been our biggest kind of savior in terms of the climate crises to date. It's absorbed about 90% of the heat that we have had accumulated on Earth just from human-induced greenhouse gas emissions. So that's 90% of all warming that has happened from humans has been just taken by the ocean. And we haven't felt that. So if you imagine, you know, what we're seeing right now in terms of extreme weather, storms, heat waves, things like that, like that's 10% of what we could have experienced basically, right? Yeah. It's
2: amazing. Yeah.
0: And then in addition to that, it's also taken in about a third of the carbon dioxide that we've released. And that is is really amazing like the roles that the ocean has been able to perform in that capacity but there's this big thing that we're talking about right now in the science community and in the policy community about tipping points and Mm. what we're recognizing with the ocean is like it's been doing us this great service but it's starting to get to that point where people are getting worried about how much longer it can keep doing that and we're starting to see a lot of negative implications from all of that heat and all of that carbon dioxide that the ocean has taken in
2: so you're saying to me climate change is actually affecting the ocean's ability to actually regulate climate and we are in fact reaching some sort of tipping point in the not too distant future?
0: That's that's what the science is showing, yeah.
2: What, what does that look like what does a tipping point look like what happens is it like you know the thing of movies that movie was it end of tomorrow or the age of tomorrow, tomorrow where the, the ocean climb the ocean currents just shift yeah. and New York goes freezing or something is that yeah. what we're, is that is that crazy or is that just possible or
0: it's Possible in a non-Hollywood way. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> the the background of that movie really, right, is that the ocean circulation switched mm. and it caused rapid, like we just shot into an ice age. But like a thousand years ago, that's our last ice age. We went into it because of a glacial lake flooded out into the North Atlantic and it stopped the Gulf Stream, which runs from Florida up to Maine in Canada, basically, along the east coast of the US. It's a really, really strong current. Forms the beginning of this, what's called the thermohaline circulation. It's this big current that circles the entire world. 1,000 years it takes from the North Atlantic all the way around the Earth and then back again. And so that is really the, the start of that massive circulation pattern. And what happened when that glacial lake flooded was it put a lot of fresh water into the North Atlantic and it switched the ability for that big current to form and it caused the last ice age. And, you know, that's not going to happen overnight, but in some respects, we could see impacts from something like that on, you know, a decade timescale.
1: I'm so happy with that because I had a pub argument with a mate of mine uh, about how the last ice age happened. And he was like, there was a meteor. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it's something to do with exactly what you said, but... I can't wait to win that
2: battle. I'm, I'm so excited. <laughs> are we are we seeing symptoms like well, you got the scientists are obviously out there with various probes and monitoring equipment what what are the sort of signs that we are in fact reaching some sort of tipping point in terms of the ocean's ability to regulate climate?
0: It depends on where you're looking in the ocean ocean circulation you can think about okay, so like if you think about the big impacts that the ocean is experiencing in relation to just climate impacts, so not any you know pollution, et cetera. if you think about just climate induced impacts, you have warming, you have acidification, you have deoxygenation, warming it stratifies the ocean, so if you think about the ocean, it's this big three d box, Hmm. basically, right? And you have many, many layers in it. And all of that is controlled by density. So it's how closely the water molecules are packed together. And when you warm up water, the molecules expand. So the ocean warming, it actually causes, for example, some sea level rise. That's Hmm. not just from ice melting, right? It's, It's from the molecules expanding. And when that happens, the way that the ocean is layered, and thus the way that the ocean is moving around the world changes. And so we do see some indications of some vulnerabilities there in ocean circulation, and those are heightened by sea ice melt, right? So the Mm. more fresh water that we're releasing, the worse of a situation that we will be in. A lot of this is kind of why the International Panel on Climate Change, so the big UN body that kind of regulates Mm -hmm. all of the policies that come out about climate change, this is why they're really trying to meet that 1.5 warming cap. They're trying to limit warming on Earth from 1850, so pre-industrial levels, to 1.5 degrees. And that is because when you go over that, that's when the modeling shows that we'll start passing some of these tipping points.
2: Right and all evidence indicates we will go past that 1.5 degree increase is that correct or
0: if we use this decade wisely um then we may go past it a little bit and but we could kind of pull back pretty quickly and and, wow. and stabilize what we do this this decade what happens before 2030 is extremely important
2: so this is the decade of action
0: it is wow. it
1: actually makes me feel like um, shivers up my arms like we've with- This is it. You know, this is
2: it. But I look at this and also and go, like, what a golden opportunity. You know, where else would you like to be in in terms of history? You know, you always think about – we're, what we would do in hi- great historical moments, you know, standing next to William Wallace fighting in English or the French Revolution or fighting a war, you know, this is the goal, this is potentially the greatest opportunity or challenge the human race has ever faced. We're in an ideal position to actually do something about it, and we have to. And if we don't, my Lord, sure, surely future generations would look at us and go... What did you guys do? Yeah, nothing.
1: one hundred percent. No, but that's why it chills up my my arms. Also, well, mm. oh, I'm scared of that. So I'm like, right, we have just yeah, really got to you know hunker down. And governments, instead of going, like, are we going to meet this target or not? Like we should be trying to exceed. The, you know, we'll
2: you know reduce it further. Well, speaking of governments, like, so is the ocean's role in climate regulation? actually well recognized and is actually being recognized in climate policies you know we've just had the cop 26 climate change conference in glasgow is the ocean's role in climate change being appropriately recognized and we are seeing are we seeing some greater government policies or actions in in this space
0: we're starting to a lot more Uh, so traditionally it wasn't recognized very much but about 2015 if you know about the Paris Agreement that happened. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of a big turning point for the oceans. After that, a lot of countries had to put forth these contributions, kind of what they're concerned about and what they want to do. And 70% of those re- referenced the ocean. And from that, the 25th COP, so we just had in Glasgow the the, the 26th COP. Before that, the, the 25th one, it was convened and called the Blue COP by the Chilean presidency. And mm-hmm. and that, that was really because there was this increased momentum being seen for ocean policy for the fact that, you know, if you talk about the climate, you really have to talk about the ocean. And in this most recent COP26 in Glasgow, we we saw for the first time in the final decision text that the ocean was brought into the framework of the UN climate change working program. Um, Just last week, they made a new website about that. There are a lot of events planned this year, directed at that. There was this whole um, ocean pavilion at COP26 where you had directed talks, interactions, discussions all about the ocean. So we're seeing this momentum build and we really need to kind of keep that going. This decade actually is considered the ocean decade for science and sustainability and the target of that is trying to see a lot of changes in terms of marine protected areas, in terms of ocean science in terms of financing and things like that.
1: I think if you find, if you go back to episode 68 this guy here was saying we need a government to govern the ocean, it needs to be an yeah. independent thing and, and what's interesting is if you think about the science is there what you just said, the ocean ba- basically absorbs 90% of, of the in the world that we have, and only now we're just starting to, at these climate meetings, only just now we're starting to talk about the ocean. seems a bit odd. I mean, it's just been staring us in the face for so long and we haven't done anything about it. I think if you
2: historically look at it, like I think it was in the late 1800s, everyone thought, I think it was a guy called Hardy who said, the ocean's just so big we could never have any impact on the health of the ocean, yeah, and I think they use that to justify uh, uh, some fishing
0: and just uh, fishing throwing things practices. off of the ships, yeah. polluting the high seas. And and I mean, it's it's still a really big problem because a lot of the ocean is you know this high seas area where it's kind of this non-governed area. Who has responsibility for it? Exactly. And, you know, that's really important for things like ocean mining, which is starting to be considered a lot. Mm. Companies are trying to mine rare earth minerals from from the deep ocean. And that's because we're kind of running out of resources on land. So they're like, ah, maybe we can go in the ocean and, and use these ones. And it's like, who governs that, you know, because a lot of those areas aren't under the jurisdiction of any country, right? It's definitely something where It takes the whole world really working together to make this happen because the ocean is our world, right? It's 70% of our world. You know, it covers 70% of of the surface of, of the earth. And so if we're going to be able to manage it, to protect it, to make sure that it can keep doing what it does best, then we have to really all work together on that.
1: You think of really small, highly populated countries, you know, like, I don't know, Japan or something, you know, you've got millions of people in a very small spot, all contributing, you know, to the ocean, but yet yeah, we've got this massive body of water, 70%, 70%. And I don't know how much how much of that would be the high seas. Do you, do you know? Like, I mean, how much is governed by countries and versus high sea? Look, I don't know. Just logically speaking about it, you're going, well, wow, there's a whole lot of area and, you know, no one's looking after it. No one's responsible for it yet we're all contributing to it in in such a massive way. I mean, to me, it makes sense. Do you think in the next 10 years we will see a government type um, arrangement over the oceans?
0: One of the big phrases that has been coming out a lot is our ocean, our responsibility, right? And it's really with this message that it's easy to think perhaps, oh, that's not our government's area, it's not our responsibility, but it is everyone's responsibility. There are a lot of like international panels that exist. So there's like the International Seabed Authority. This is scientists, policymakers, managers from all over the world that get together and try and figure out what happens in those high seas, right? And similarly, there's a lot of other international bodies like that, that really, come together to to try and address those issues in the non-governable areas. But it really kind of is going to start being focused a lot more at the UN level. And that's what we're seeing. That's what we saw come out in the decision text from Glasgow is that the UN climate change center is recognizing, okay, we we really need to bring this to the forefront more. And they're they're kind of considering it this nexus, this ocean biodiversity climate nexus, where in order to preserve our future, we need to be thinking about this this big triangle.
2: On the topic of biodiversity, is the link between sort of climate change and ocean biodiversity sort of well understood? I hear talk of, okay, if we have a one point five degree sea temperature increase, we'll lose ninety percent of a reef. If we have a three degree increase, we lose ninety nine percent of reefs. And I think something like eighty percent of marine species uh, spend at least part of their life in a reef environment. So that means eighty percent of marine species are all heavily impacted if we lose the reef. So that's just from my. my very simple engineering understanding is is that correct is, is there a really strong link between climate change and our ocean biodiversity and is that link really well understood
0: yeah so you can think about it from say three main aspects warming acidification and deoxygenation so on the warming side you mentioned coral reefs right we have a really good understanding of the fact that when the oceans get too hot coral reefs bleach and die right that's well accepted but it's not just there that we see the implications. So with warming, if you think about the deep sea, so the deep sea is pretty protected from a lot of surface warming that is happening. But a lot of the deep sea relies on food that comes down from the surface of the ocean. And so what a lot of modeling has shown is that in future climate scenarios, as the ocean gets warmer and warmer, the amount of area of the ocean that phytoplankton can kind of photosynthesize in. So these little microscopic animals and plants that provide a lot of the food to our ocean and also produce like 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, right? So these guys are like super important. After they produce 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, they sink down and they provide food for deep sea animals. Modeling has shown that in future climate scenarios, we could see 10% less animals in the deep sea because they're getting less food. So across all ecosystems, no matter how close or how far, we're seeing implications of warming. Acidification, people talk about a lot. And it's, I think, easy to think about just like, it's not very comfortable if things get too acidic. You know, if we have hazard ratings on really acidic chemicals because they harm our skin, a lot of marine animals make skeletons that are made of calcium carbonate and calcium carbonate dissolves in certain levels of acidity. There was some work that came out recently looking at these really funny marine organisms called pteropods, and they make these shells that you can measure and look at past climate conditions, see how much CO2 was in the ocean. And the results suggested that the amount of CO2 being seen now hasn't been seen in 65 million years.
2: Which wow. is a really
0: long time, right? <laughs> I see your
2: eyes light up, and you're really excited about it. Jeremy's sort of, yeah. you know, scratching his head, you know, <laughs> head, in, head in his hands, super depressed. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't mean it is very dark and depressing, and honestly, it's yeah. something that that I struggle with myself is 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 not letting it get me too dark and too depressed when I'm seeing yeah. this all of the time. But it's important, I think, to know how dark it is, so that we can be like, okay, like we really need to do something about this. Right?
1: plushcare.com slash weight loss hold up
0: deoxygenation is kind of a bit of a favorite of mine, not in terms of I really like it, but in terms of I really think we should do a lot about it. Deoxygenation is just a word to describe the loss of oxygen from the ocean. A lot of animals in the ocean need oxygen to live. And so if you remove that oxygen, then they die. We've had a quadrupling of dead zones in the ocean since 1950, which is super severe. Some of the biggest dead zones are in the Gulf of Mexico, they're in the Arabian Sea and in the Baltic Sea. And some of those, you know, are near the size of New South Wales, for example, in Australia. So these things can be super, super massive and they're expanding A lot of them are caused by eutrophication, so that's runoff of nutrients from land. But -hmm. then you also have a lot of this being caused by ocean warming itself, because Mm -hmm. ocean warming, you can think about when it's really hot outside, animals breathe a lot more, they need a lot more water we all have experienced that and it's the same in the ocean if it gets more if it gets like a little bit too hot then the animals in the ocean breathe more and they use up the oxygen and you get expanding dead zones all of those impact the survival of animals and that means that in future climate scenarios across all spectrums we'll see a decrease not only in the diversity of animals in the ocean but also in the abundance and in how many are actually there
2: and so these human induced pressures Obviously, uh, are impacting on ocean biodiversity, uh, but they're also impacting the ocean's ability to c- regulate the climate. Uh, I'm guessing. So you mentioned eutrophication. Are there other sort of human induced activities that are actually causing more pressure on the ocean and its ability to regulate the climate? Like, I'm thinking, is it, is plastic pollution? Is it is overfishing contributing, or what? What? What else is happening?
0: Yeah, it's all connected. So I study microbes, right? And I'm really fascinated in, in microbes because when you look at this really small scale, you see this web of like super complex interactions that kind of manifest up to not only build ecosystems, but determine how those systems respond to change. And so mm. when I look at different environments, I'm seeing like this web of connectivity. And that's really mm. what exists out there. Everything that we do, everything that's happening, even, you know, if it's on the other side of the world impacts what's going on around us. There's a dust storm in Africa. It is felt in Antarctica. There can be uh, depositions of iron and dust from that dust storm that can lead to blooms of phytoplankton and things, right? Like our world Mm -hmm. is very, very connected. Eutrophication is a really big one. But if you also think about, um, you mentioned fishing and and overfishing is harmful, but also the act of fishing itself is harmful. So bottom trawling, that disturbs the seafloor a lot of carbon in the ocean is buried on the seafloor. So if you disturb the seafloor, then the seafloor can't bury that carbon very well. Mm. right? So that's a big one. Microplastics. I've been doing some work recently looking at how when microplastics degrade, it causes these genetic shifts in the microbes that are around the microplastics. Those shifts include shifts in their ability to process carbon and nitrogen. So as those microplastics, which plastic is just a carbon compound in itself, right? It's made from Mm. oil, but Mm. it is a really complex carbon compound. And so when it starts degrading, you release all of these really big carbon compounds into the sediment around you and the microbes have to shift to adapt to that. And they're really good at adapting, but then you get this buildup of microbes that aren't very good at processing smaller, simpler compounds, which mm. is what we really need to bury a lot of the carbon that we're trying to trap right now. So there's a lot of these big feedbacks, right? Oh,
1: hey, look, number one, you're going to be a regular on our show. You're <laughs> you're, 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 you're just awesome and communicating. You really are, Sarah. Um, Thank you. So no, please. Um, it's just amazing to listen to you and makes us... Anyway, um, it just blows my mind how interconnected it is. And and look, we all know how the world and and what happens here, but we we do. But when you really break it down and start diving into some of these issues and specifically what you were just talking about – Plastic in the ocean, well, um, you know, we're all worried about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. We've got microplastics, we've got avalanches of plastics all over the world. And, and now you put it into that perspective, I'll ask you a question. Do you think that's a human health issue?
0: Yeah, definitely. Actually, microplastics have been shown to lead to antibiotic resistance in microbes around them. So those are like genetic shifts I was talking about that uh, cause shifts in carbon and nitrogen. It also causes gene mutations that increase antibiotic resistance. Interestingly, think about aquaculture. Aquaculture produces microplastics. Below those, perhaps you could see antibiotic resistance occurring, which then could feed up into the aquaculture, right? So there's that. And then also, similarly, like when we have um, plastic water bottles being converted to these different forms because they find that they're hazardous to our health. Microplastics themselves just by the compounds that they expose us to are harmful. At the end of the day, I think it's pretty simple, right? We are part of this like long-evolved system that has been millions and billions of years since life first formed, you know, 3.4 billion years ago, like slowly through many modifications getting to us, right? And we are used to certain things. We've adapted for certain things. And in the past, particularly 50 years, we've changed that dramatically. And you can't just expect that everything will just like quickly adapt to that and be fine, you know? Um, And so In solving a lot of this, I think it's thinking about just how to think more simply about things, how to live more simply, how to kind of reduce some of the new complexity that we've added.
2: It's amazing hearing you talk, and Jeremy mentioned it before, about how you're thinking, you know, really big picture, we're all connected. But fundamentally, you're an ecological microbiologist. So you spend a lot of your time playing around with sea mud, uh, looking at little microbes. Yeah. meanwhile you're waxing lyrical about you know like a Carl Sagan like character saying we're all connected and it's and honestly it's amazing it's not what I expected and and, and I think it's time we need to change tack because it has been a little bit depressing uh <laughs> so far but that's good we we'd certainly appreciate it and all the science that you've sort of landed on us
1: so why do we have to change tack have you got a hair appointment I,
2: I want to hear a bit <laughs> of positivity <laughs> I guess the key question I had the ocean's got a huge role in climate regulation. We're sort of making it more difficult for the ocean in various ways, but is it actually possible to enhance the ocean's role in climate regulation to appropriately mitigate climate change and obviously the impacts? Can we turn the ship around by looking after our ocean better?
0: Yeah, and there's a few ways to do that. A lot of them are really underway already and, and it's really exciting and a lot to look forward to. So 30% by 2030 is this big initiative right now of protecting 30% of the ocean, creating MPAs that cover, so marine protected areas that cover 30% of the ocean by 2030. And within that initiative is this idea of preserving biodiversity, preserving the ability for ecosystems to do what they do best, right? I was mentioning like simplicity earlier. And the ocean and most ecosystems are really good at managing their own thing, and it gets a little bit messy when we kind of try and get involved. It's like if there's a relationship and you kind of wedge your way in, that doesn't work really well normally, right? Um, You just kind of need to let things go. And... That initiative has already seen huge increases in the amount of marine protected areas places. So um, they created what they called like the Great Blue Wall, basically. And that's a big, huge protection area that was being established this year in the Indian Ocean. At Glasgow, uh, Panama, Ecuador and Colombia came together to create a joined marine protected area between their countries to to link up and, and allow a huge area for ecosystems to recover in so that's a really big one just letting the ocean do its own thing but then also because we've caused a mess we kind of need to help it along and it's the same if you think about our responsibility and the responsibility of the global north to help out in developing countries who are bearing a lot of the brunt of climate change um similarly as like the oceans have borne a lot of the brunt of, of climate change we we do need to help that out a little bit and so thinking about blue carbon right if done in the right way that can help reduce the amount of carbon in ecosystems. So that is a really interesting thing to think about. Regenerative aquaculture and and blue carbon techniques, so kind of coupling together, say, seaweed farming with mussel farming, that allows Mm -hmm. this ecosystem effect to take place, which can be really good. And there's a lot of funding right now to look at additional strategies that we can use to kind of draw down carbon dioxide in, in mm-hmm. the ocean and kind of help establish healthier levels. So it will really be a, a mix of those two things, a mix of mm-hmm. us stepping back from some areas and just letting the ecosystem do its own thing, and then a mix of putting in some technologies that can enhance the ability of the ocean to do that.
2: Yeah, and so just to clarify, this, these marine protected areas—they're going to obviously areas that are uh, kind of a little bit reduced fishing practices, I'm guessing, or or completely absent of fishing practices. And the, you mentioned the blue carbon, so we've had Corey Hancock talk about massive seaweed farms, essentially deep sea uh, seaweed farms to. Brought down carbon and, and ideally store it, but obviously there's other blue carbon initiatives, isn't there? Like you know, protecting our mangrove environments, for example, protecting even whales. Uh, I think whales are, and other sort of marine yeah. species are recognised as a great way of storing carbon. Just if we stop murdering whales, they can actually play a key role in actually <laughs> mitigating climate change. Yeah. So it's, and, and I think in Australia, our government has done one good thing around recognising importance of this blue green carbon economy to sort of provide sort of essentially offset opportunities to do these blue green carbon initiatives so the mangrove protection etc which i think is a real positive and i'm guessing other countries around the world will be doing the same thing as well
0: yeah there is a big movement in that and there is a a big interest in in that seaweed farming and and kind of trying to pull down lots lots of carbon and it's just ensuring that the mechanisms in which those are established are sustainable and and will lead to to sure long-term benefits because like we're kind of talking about earlier, you have to be careful that you don't just kind of create a lot more carbon that has to be broken down by microbes and won't be broken down super well. But if it's done right, these are some really great technologies that we can think about. I think that it can be really dark when you kind of think about all the problems that we're facing, but then we have come so far. I mean, the fact that we're even here talking about this, right, the fact that COP26 last year put in its final decision text that the ocean needed to be included more, it asked for an annual ocean dialogue where countries and non-governmental organizations and UN bodies can come together and talk about the ocean and what needs to be done. We, we have this decade of ocean science right now. We have huge initiatives for marine biodiversity, And that's all really, really awesome. There's this author I really like, Steven Pinker, and he has this book that just came out, Rationality. And in that book, he's talking about how, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there. But when you think really rationally about it, we've come really far. And that should really instill hope in us and motivate us to kind of keep trying. Right. Because I think if you get like too despaired, then you don't feel super motivated to do something. It can be kind of too overwhelming. But if you think that there is a chance that there is hope, then then it's maybe more inspiring.
2: And I guess one key action, obviously, is just reducing the amount of pollution discharged to our oceans. Like you mentioned, the key risk of eutrophication and I think the leading cause of ocean dead zones is uh, agricultural runoff, particularly animal agriculture, hashtag plant power. But obviously, if we can reduce the amount of plastic flowing into our oceans and waterways, that'll obviously go a long way towards protecting our uh, ocean and its role in, in climate regulation.
1: And, and and the thing is, mate, when we started on stormwater, um and i'll ask you when you started stormwater was plastic
0: talked about
2: no i remember there's a, a throwaway guideline reference that uh, you'd know a water by design guideline a modeling guideline that said oh yeah little loads from urban areas is, is very low and i remember thinking oh, okay fair enough and then and then you just join us ocean protect and you, we see the litter that comes from our urban environments and you do cleanups and whatever and you go there's an enormous amount of plastic flying from our urban areas you know the stats are overwhelming, but it's again, it's, uh, it's something that we can actually uh, solve. And again, it's not just a water quality issue anymore. It's it's recognizing that uh, for uh, for the pollution that flows into our oceans, it contributes to a decreased ability to regulate uh, the climate, which obviously is critically important.
1: Okay, question to you, Brad and Sarah. Would you say plastic pollution is the most harmful contaminant that's we commonly see in stormwater? You've got large bits of plastic that will eventually become micropasta as, as you know as it breaks down. And we've got so much microplastics going into our waterways via you know, tire degradation. None of the standards are really pointed towards that are they?
2: Mm, no.
0: The most Dominant force of transport for for microplastics into the marine environment is is wastewater actually, and so wastewater so oh, from yeah
1: from this yeah from textiles thirty five percent yeah you're right we're done. Yeah. Uh, no that's not
2: true actually if I can if I can chime in so yeah there's a recent IUCN report that sort of said that it depends on where you are in in terms of the infrastructure as well because sometimes there's combined sewer systems but the number one microplastic found in oceans is micro is tire wear and tear. Tire, wear, and tear. Tire, wear, and
0: tear. That's new, from, that's new from what I've heard. Wow.
2: I think the report said 28% of all microplastics in our oceans are coming from tire, wear, and tear. And they generally are conveyed by stormwater, but depending on what country you're in, they, they, in Australia, they go to a stormwater system, but in some parts of you know Europe and America and developing countries, that is a combined system. So they would refer to that as a wastewater system. Certainly the, the second leading cause of microplastics is clothing. So from your laundry and, yeah. and whatever. And obviously that does go to a wastewater system. Then obviously a massive source of microplastics is just bigger plastics breaking down into yeah. smaller pieces and the overwhelming majority of macroplastics bigger than five millimeters is land-based sources and primarily stormwater system Oh, stormwater systems or just just deregulate or poorly managed landfills or waste management facilities so yeah but again for me the, the, if we can go if we can both whether we're targeting clothing fibers or macroplastics or cigarette butts or tie wear and tear If we can do whatever we can do to sort of mitigate the flow of those plastic, big or small, into our ocean environment, it's a positive thing. But as Jeremy's question, what's the most uh, critically important pollutant flowing into our oceans? Yeah, yeah, what is it? From land. From land, yeah, certainly plastics are a a massive one. And I actually think the jury is out as to how damaging they are. Like uh, the jury's not even –
1: the jury's just being started.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. There's so much new research about it all. And I think it's hard to know. I mean, it depends. You know, if you look at coastal ecosystems, I would say that nutrient runoff is potentially the, the most impactful, right? But then we're also increasingly starting to look at heavy metals that are coming in into the ocean, and those cause really big impacts in the way that an ecosystem can Function, and I think it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's like nice to try and think of one one big thing that is the biggest problem we should address. But I see a lot of the focus now moving on to cumulative stressors and really trying to keep the focus on the multitude of things that are happening because it really, while we're starting to try and manage how much microplastics are getting into the ocean, we should also be managing how much nutrient runoff is happening. We should also be managing how much heavy metals. Yeah.
2: And then to Jeremy's question, like we, it's almost a hard question to answer because a, a single pollutant. What's the worst? It's the cocktail of pollutants: the yeah, the that's, that's the plastics, heavy metals, yeah. nutrients that we see in urban runoff, but also agricultural uh, runoff. Yeah, yeah. Um, they all combine with other stresses to uh, negatively impact the our our health of our oceans and ultimately us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and the reason I brought that up is because we deal a lot with different regulations around Australia. Yep. And around the world, you know, like we're like you, you you talk about heavy metals. Depends on what your coastline's like, you know. Australia's obviously very flat, great, so the water can sort of hang around, whereas New Zealand, you sort of go off and then it just shoots down and everything gets dispersed. And It was more of a question around regulation, you know. Um, are we paying enough attention? I like in, in Australia, we talk about total nitrogen being reduced from urban storm runoff. We talk about uh, reductions in phosphorus. Um, we talk about reductions in total sediment. We don't have any heavy metal runoff reductions requirements. In New Zealand, we do. But in Australia we, we don't for some reason. We don't have any plastics regulation. We talk about trash, but we don't have any plastics, do we? So
0: even in like water treatment plants, do they do they filter out microplastics at-
1: No, interesting interesting enough, yeah. ask Brad.
2: Really? Brad's management. Yeah. This is something I've sort of raised behind the scenes a few times to water utilities. They have, Yeah, to Jeremy's point, uh, like if you're a sewage treatment plant operator or owner in Australia, you've got nutrient load limits, nitrogen, phosphorus, BOD, COD, biological oxygen, basically carbon. But yeah, no limits around microplastics. Similar for other sort of emerging, what we call emerging contaminants, you know, new contaminants like say new, but they've often been around for fifty years. Microplastics, PFAS, etc. There's no limits or regulation requirements around these pollutants. We actually don't really know how damaging they are. We don't really know what is an appropriate limit, often because we don't even know how to remove them appropriately as well. So it's it's a new area, but I think overwhelmingly, the more we can sort of do to just reduce the amount of pollution, whatever that might might be, recognizing that pollutants are often attached to each other basically so for example if you can remove litter and dirt you'll go a long way to removing a whole bunch of attached pollutants the more we can sort of I guess reduce those pollutant loads the better
0: and there's a lot of feedback that happens with, with that. So if we think about just, for example, heavy metals and microplastics, they can feed back on each other in, in the marine environment when, when they get there. So if you have a lot of microplastics, it can cause this shift in the ecosystem where you have an accumulation of heavy metals because all of the critters that would be eating on those heavy metals dissipate from the population they aren't there as much anymore so then your heavy metals get higher right and so that's why i think it's really important yeah like this cumulative interconnected web of everything right
2: it's all related we're all linked we're all all just (laughs) stardust but just going back to it we've got this
1: sort of thing as humans we go right we sort of think there's a problem we're gonna sort of go hey plastics a problem but it's not we don't know how much of a problem it is so therefore we're not going to regulate it because we don't know and then we sort of
2: tend to just sort of let i mean i don't know it's just our way of compartmentalizing problems you know, yeah silo we, issues yeah. we silo ourselves etc but to sarah's point we're all we're all linked uh, look i feel as though we could talk all day to sarah and i think i agree with jeremy we're going to have to have a, like a sarah seabrook corner
1: The the other thing I thought just then was you should hook up, and if you don't know, uh, Dr. Katie DeFront from the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. You'd really love to have a chat to her. She's all about microbes and analysing, you know, like sediment in um, Sydney Harbour. And, yeah, you guys would have a great chat.
2: But but I guess the final question, the final question, and you've been giving us all this sort of doom and gloom science the whole way through with a very large smile on your face. You clearly strike me as someone who is actually optimistic about this issue.
0: Yeah, so when I'm not doing science, I train and, and run ultramarathons, and so oh. these are like these, these really big, long, long-distance trail races, right? And I you like need to, to talk think off.) About
2: lines, Sarah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like to think about the climate crises and the ocean crises as I think about when I am preparing for a really big trail race. right? How, how far do you run? Um, so next weekend I have a hundred kilometer one that I'm doing actually, oh, which I'm very so you, You're
1: speaking to you're speaking to an um, ultra marathon person and Brad Dalrymple. You guys will awesome. run off to the uh, the distance. So 100K, you're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Next, n- next weekend, you'll get this then, Brad, if you do ultra running too. So if you, if you pick a race site that, that you're going to do, imagine that you haven't been training for it, right. And you sign up for this race, you couldn't just show up on race day and go out and do it and have a good time, right? You might get injured. You might, you might kind of have to not finish the race, but if you, when you sign up, you make a really structured, organized race plan where you kind of break it down into training runs each day. And each day, maybe you're only adding like 0.01% fitness to your your overall game, right? But that zero point zero one percent adds up, and then over time, you get to a point where you can show up on race day and have a great time. And it's similar with the climate crisis and with the ocean crisis. It is this really big, overwhelming problem, and it, it I think, particularly in our society, where we can like turn to our phone or turn on the TV, or whatever, and kind of distract ourselves from what's happening. It's probably really tempting, I think, to to do that in in, in some aspects. But if you think about it as something that you need to plan for, something that you need to break down into some organized steps for yourself. And if you think about small things that you can do that kind of already intersect with your life, you know, can you maybe start composting more that can reduce 50% of your food-related greenhouse gas emissions, right? Like that's a really awesome thing that you can do. Can you vote with your dollar? Can you kind of like support only sustainable fisheries if if you're gonna be supporting fisheries? Can you think about who you're talking to and what you're saying, can you make sure that this continues to get magnified so that at the governmental level, at the international level, it's known that there is a lot of public interest and public support of making these big systematic changes. I think if we kind of keep our mind on that, then it's really possible to see the change that we need to have happen. And I think anyone that you talk to, you know, I know at Glasgow, the very famous climate activist Greta Thunberg, she said during her rally, I wouldn't be an activist if I didn't have hope. And I think that's because there has been a lot of momentum and we have a path forward to have the change happen that we need. It's just that people need to stay committed to that. People need to do their own part. People need to talk about it. People need to not, you know, turn turn their shoulder on it. I have hope. I have hope that we can do that.
2: Yeah. And look, we all have a role to play, whether you're a, a microbial ecologist, whether you're an engineer, a scientist, doctor, midwife, kid, politician, we all have a role to play. And to the point you made earlier, this is the decade of change. We have to act. We've almost got no choice. So let's just pull up our sucks and do it. Right. So. Look, I feel as though we need to land this plane now.
1: Land, let's land, let's refuel and keep going. Um, <laughs> Sarah Seabrook, welcome to the Ocean Project team. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll send you out some merch and look forward to chatting next time. What a great chat. We will certainly, if you would make time for us, I'd love to chat again. I feel we could do a whole thing on the Deepwater Horizon catastrophe. I mean, I've, I've been taking yeah. notes down on yeah. um so many different topics but thanks for taking the time to come and have a chat to us today we really appreciate it keep doing what you're doing because it's uh, it's awesome
0: thank you so much i had a great time i've learned some things and really enjoyed really enjoyed talking as well so that's awesome
1: boom boom Appreciate the room thanks for listening to the ocean protect podcast if you'd like to find out more about us and what we do check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.